Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code POETRY. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 70, and we're recording on Thursday, September 11th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We are some of the editors of BookRiot.com. We are. We've got we other company folks now. now. I know. There's and you're the, back the, from vacation. I am. Hello? Well, vacation, it's a loose term when you're visiting family with young Quotation children. Quotation marks around vacation. Yeah, I like to think of it as foreign service. You know, <laughs> you're, you're overseas, <laughs> over there. Mm-hmm. As we said once we called it, um, you were out of office. I, yeah, I was. Uh, I was on assignment. There you go in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. Not a bad assignment. No, not terrible, but uh, you know, air travel. Um, well, welcome back. Let's do follow up. Follow up. Yeah. Woohoo! Follow up. So someday me, we're going to have sound effects for. I don't know. I think I think these is like completely home brewed like. <laughs> Who needs what, a soundboard? Ho- hoots and hollers. It's kind of what we need. <laughs> Homebrewed hoots and hollers. That's pretty good. I like that. That is pretty good. Um, Lindy Pratch, listener. Thank you, Lindy. Send us some information from the Edmonton Public Library uh, about social workers and libraries because, of course, Canada did it already. Of course. Um, and they, let's see. What are the salient details here? Um, they have... They've been doing it since 2011. Of course. Three years ahead of time. Um Com- the r- disorderly youth and homeless individuals were getting a lot of complaints. Uh, I'm reading there because I would never say disorderly youth and homeless individuals <laughs> naturally. Uh, the, but And so their one idea was to bring social workers in and see if they could help these people do other things and maybe redirect whatever it was troubling them or get them the social services they need. And they said this complaints have gone down 69% since the inception of the outreach program. Um, since 2011, the program has helped over 1,200 ask at-risk individuals. Pretty cool. good. That is pretty good. And there's a, a video that we'll include in the show notes as well that Lindy forwarded along that's uh, sort of testimonials from people who have been helped by the social workers that are uh, in place in the Edmonton Public Library. And uh, when Lindy emailed me, I asked her, like, oh, is this something that all of Canada is doing Mm -hmm. or just Edmonton? And she said that the Edmonton Public Library has been widely recognized and has won awards um, for this program. And so it's, uh, as Paul and I were talking about last week, social workers in libraries is not a a widespread uh, thing yet, and it's not a standard practice in public libraries, it sounds like, in Canada. Um, Certainly not a standard practice here in the U.S., but it's having really positive effects, and so it's great especially to see that the Edmonton Public Library has been doing it long enough that now they have some real information uh, and you know some data about how many people they've helped, but also some nice publicity material to get the word out that this works in libraries and hopefully to encourage other libraries to do it. So thank you, Lindy, for letting us know about that. And if you're interested in watching the testimonials or reading the details, we'll have the link in the show notes for you. Let's do our first sponsor. Squarespace is back. Squarespace is the easy, simple, intuitive way to make beautiful, responsive websites. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code POETRY at the checkout. That gets you 10% off. And if you sign up for a year, it's only $8 a month and includes a free domain name. That's Some of us call that a website name. So if you need to go to edmontonisawesome.ca, maybe you can find it over there at Squarespace. Every site comes with online store or e-commerce. So if you want to sell something, built right in, do payment processing there. One thing I forget to talk about um, that's super easy to do on Squarespace, if you're thinking about starting a podcast of your own, Squarespace has built-in tools to host your podcast and have a blog associated oh, with it right I there. I did not know this yeah, about podcast hosting I host files and there. RSS and the whole 
um, the whole shoot and match there. They've got 20 pre-designed templates that are naturally responsive, which means if someone opens up your website on a phone or a tablet or a 27-inch iMac or a 30-inch 30 uh, 30-inch cinema display, the website still looks great. It's built into the DNA of the site to reshape itself in a way that's best for whatever device it's being looked at, which is super hard to do on your own and kind of feels like magic. I and have it to really, say. really, really matters. Yeah, it, it, really, it really does matter. I mean, <laughs> really one matters. thing we know just looking at our own site traffic is like our mobile slash tablet traffic is a, I think, I haven't looked recently, but it might be more than 50% of our total traffic now. Yeah, it to is. To bookriot.com. So you want something that looks great. So those, those 20 pre-designed templates look great as is, but you can go in and with very little pain and suffering, maybe none even, um, you can change the colors and the layouts and without breaking the responsive design. They're not going to let you do something uh, that breaks the responsive design. So you can move things around, change column widths, change your fonts, do all those sorts of things and still know that it's going to look great. But should something go awry, should you get into the HTML because you're feeling froggy one um, Sunday morning and something happens, 24-7 live chat customer, sub- customer support makes them a lot different than so many other web hosting solutions. So here's, here's my pitch on Squarespace. If you're going to do something that you're going to put any kind of time into, I mean even an hour a month online and you want your own space to do it, pay for it because you get so much more and you're going to save yourself so much time and headache than trying to, you know, I'm going to get away with something free so I can save a couple of bucks. Um, I think the, the, the value of spending a few dollars on your own good, supported, constantly updated um, web services solution is a really great idea. Swearspace.com, enter code POETRY, 10% off. All right, let's do, we got tech... I don't know. We already have methodology corner, so we need like tech alley. So let's 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 take a stroll down tech alley because we got a couple of little things here to do. All right, I'm just gonna hook my arm through your elbow. Yeah, and, and we'll 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 uh, do hop skips down tech alley. Perfect. Um, reader sent in a her own review. Uh, Katrina, thank you so much, Katrina, for writing. She bought one of the new Samsung Galaxy Tab fours that's built with Nook into it. Oh, and so she said. Uh, she said, you know, uh, she bought one because she has a n- n- color, um, but it had some gift cards floating around. So she thought she'd try it. So here are her thoughts. Um, the pros: if you already have an Android phone and have like an identity set up through Google Android, you can switch to it super easy. You enter your login information, and your apps and things start populating, and you're logged into everything, which is really nice. That is really nice. Uh, setting up a new device is always a pain in the whatever hurts you the worst. Um, and so that's, that's really cool. It has a scan, it has the same readings and screen as the Nook color. So she says that it's a really nice reading experience. The technology is really good. Um, let's see her, the cons, uh, let's see. Oh, we talked, um, I guess the last time I was on the show when we were talking about the, that was available that it says it comes with $200 of content. Mm-hmm. She says that is true, but the quality of the content, not so much. Okay. Like maybe there'll be a couple of things there that you like, but you're not going to be like, yes, I'm going to read all of the things and look at all <laughs> the things that come with it. Which, uh, probably not. You know, kind of understandable. You're, you can't make everybody happy with everything. So they're probably going for how can we hit as many targets as possible yeah. with this wide net. Right. And mixed um, metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Um, and she says I, she's pretty happy with it as technology goes uh, and uh, thought she would write in. So cool. it sounds like if you're in the market for a, a, an Android tablet that and you are a Nook customer, sounds like a pretty good way to go. Did she happen to say if it's like a Nook app that's just in the larger oh, tablet? yes, yes, okay. yes. Let's see. Hold on a second. Yeah, I haven't seen the secret um, review. Oh, yeah, it's email. Um, oh, yeah, it's a little more cumbersome to get your library on, like, on a Nook where there was just a library button, apparently. Mm-hmm. There's another small step. I think you go through an app there, she says, which okay. would make sense for an Android tablet. So there's that. Okay. Uh, this is Tech Alley slash I, I Told say, You So it, Corner. If you, go, if you go to the back of Tech Alley, there's a little side street called I Told You So Lane. Yeah. And we're going right there. 
And because Jeff, Jeff is a put up shop at I told you so lane to, for Amazon because we're hanging dropped, out a shingle. They <laughs> dropped the Fire Phone price to ninety nine cents from one hundred and ninety nine dollars. Oh, I don't think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Maybe we kicked around the notion, or there was a rumor though that um, Amazon had only sold thirty five thousand Fire Phones. I don't think we talked about that. Yeah, but someone did some reverse math on um, web browsing traffic from one of the larger right. Um, link providers, Chitika, and like they did the math. It's like, if this math is right, and this traffic corresponds to X number of devices like we know it does for iPhones, that means Amazon's only served 35,000 of them, which, which is, is not, not great shakes. No, that's um, not great. And dropping the price in, what, three weeks to yeah. 99 cents is right, a... This- uh, Ooh, this is a this is a desperation move. Feels to me like they're just trying to get rid of inventory. Like I don't know why else you do right, which is either like you, what sorry, you do when you're desperate. <laughs> yeah, or you failed. You're not right. even desperate. You're just right. like you're 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 having a garage sale. Um, so that's going on again. That's unsub- the, the the price drop is real. The thirty five thousand number is. Um, just speculation. It well, it's a little better than speculation. It's, yeah, it's educated speculation. Right. Uh, right. But interesting in the larger story that we keep sort of coming back to of Amazon being presented as the the big bad and the leader of all the innovation when they really haven't had a major hit in a while. Mm-hmm. In books, they haven't had a hit in a long time. Um, and we did talk a couple weeks ago about how Kindle Worlds has not taken off. That's the licensed fan fiction Right thing, but in technology also, I wonder too. They haven't had a big win. I wonder too if the pricing and the timing of the announcement and this price drop also was trying to get out ahead of the big um, of the iPhone nine hundred pound gorilla. Right, the iPhone announcement. You know, maybe they're just trying to get as many people that didn't, for whatever reason, know to wait for the yeah. new iPhone that were interested in it or something like that. Um, because I think I think we're both getting new iPhones this cycle, right? You're in. You're getting I'm a new one. F- man, I'm thinking about it. I want. Well, this is like my idi- personal idiosyncratic technology preference, but um, I want the size of my iPhone five with all the memory and power of the mm. iPhone six. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I'm getting the big one, five and a half inch. Oh, you're doing the six plus? Yeah, six plus. You've seen me. I'm a hu- I'm huge. That's true. Yeah. So the, these are proportional. Like I have, yeah. I have tiny lady hands. It is and a little absurd that you and I use the same size phone. Right. That is absurd. It. Like uh, the five is the right size for me. This the six plus is going to be like the size of my face. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so so that's interesting. To, to I, I'm interested. I've been using my iPad mini mostly to do my nighttime reading. In mm-hmm. five and a half inch screen, I wonder if I'll use it as much because that's pretty. That's like almost the yeah. size of like a mass market paperback. You're getting that's pretty true. close to that. I'm excited to find out. Um, yeah, I just I want the watch. That's what I'm. You want the watch? I, I, I do. Can't, I can't, what am I going to use the watch I for? Don't, the biofeedback stuff like just makes me excited. <laughs> You, well, you want the, you want it to tell you your heart rate. That's what you're interested in, or like I how want, many steps you've taken. Right, you know, like when I'm the steps, the heart rate stuff will be interesting. Like maybe you know, conference calls make my heart rate go oh, come up. On. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I think I don't know. I think that's well. I mean, really... you, of course, you can be interested in whatever you want. I was just curious to hear. Oh, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> no, I, I just was surprised. I felt like it was for you and I, we like things that do one thing particularly well. That's true. And I can't really come up with like the one thing that I want I'm the watch also, to do. I don't know. I'm just curious about Sure. Okay. It, yeah. That's what it is, really. It's like that. I want to try it. It's and Future then... Girl wants it. Future Girl Rebecca totally... doesn't want it, but Future right. Girl future wants it. Future Girl wants it, and she wants it to come with, you know, like a, a little earpiece, like in her, <laughs> where yeah. I can just talk to the watch and it will do all the things. What I really want is like the Apple Watch 2025 or something like i want what it's going to be in a decade yeah um you know how did we get here i don't know oh we're we're in technology Uh, we're in tech alley anything can happen it's dark (laughs) that's true uh the streets aren't marked very well we're we're just here for a second we're just fumbling let's wrap up one more amazon thing while we're in technology corner this one's pretty interesting as well the new creative director of amazon publishing is coming from marvel Marvel, Marvel Comics. Yep. Um, Ron Peraza? Peraza? Peraza, I guess. Um, I Do you know the publishing titles, job titles, well? Like, uh, what does a creative director do exactly in a publishing know. house? Um, yeah, well, and I, I, I mean, that's interesting. I don't know 
if the other major public, like if the big five have quote unquote creative directors, I don't know if anybody there has those, that title. Mm-hmm. Um, if they do, then I couldn't name you the creative director of any of the major houses, the way that I could name you like publishers or editors or book designers. So, but I would guess it creative director is that like the Don Draper of the publishing house? <laughs> Maybe, like, I don't know. The general creative direction of like what kinds of books they want to acquire or Maybe. how those books look or how they're going to be positioned. I don't know. Uh, he was creative director of all the digital publishing. He is going to be the creative director of all their digital publishing efforts. Okay. So it could be branding. It could be layouts and the way things look, I guess, is what generally you know what? creative directors do. We have publishing people who listen to this show, so if someone tell knows, us, please tell us. Please tell us, yeah, what this might be. Because um, my personal interest in the hierarchy of publishing houses like could not possibly be lower. Yeah, I was looking up titles in publishing the other day, and it's pretty fluid. It can be. And this one seems like a, maybe a bit of a catch-all. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, but interesting for Amazon to bring over someone from marvel and there's speculation in this piece that maybe it has something to do with um you know how amazon owns comiXology now and that would we haven't make a really, lot of sense we haven't really heard much about what amazon's going to do with comiXology and this piece uh, from comicsbeat.com also mentions kindle worlds and how um, valiant comics signed up for it to let people write licensed fan fiction about their comics and other public other comics publishers haven't been as involved, so maybe he's going to be working on some of that as well. I'm interested in what this guy's job is going to be, um, but really mm-hmm. interested to see this increased crossover from comics to book publishing. I think it's something we're going to get more and more of. Yeah. Um, all right. So maybe we're coming a little bit of out of technology alley, but not quite yet, but we're on a way out. Um, Margaret this Atwood. Is, yeah, she's like the OG future girl. Yeah, she really is. Um, she, maybe she does wear a cape under her cloak. I bet she does. She might wear a cape under <laughs> under her. You nice, know she has a jetpack somewhere. Her little cardigans, her little <laughs> Atwood cardigans. Um, <laughs> She's like pocket sized. I know. Too. Right. They really are very little small Atwood cape. Cardigans. It's like a hand towel. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Okay. So there's a lot about this I don't understand. So I'm going to try just to to describe it. Did I do it? I don't know. That's how much I understand. So, do you want me to try? I can try. Yeah, try, try. So there's a, I guess it's a public arts project, but it's basically a time capsule mm-hmm. called the Future Library Project that this um, that a Scottish artist named uh, Katie Patterson or Paterson came up with. And the idea is to pull together a bunch of texts written by artists and novelists this year, put them in this future library, which I I guess it is just a time capsule of sorts. And none of them, none of the texts will be opened or read for a hundred years. So, uh, and they're going to every year until 2114, one writer will be invited to contribute a text to the collection. So Margaret Atwood is the 2014 writer. She's the inaugural one. And then 100 years from now, people will get to read her story. Okay. So Margaret Atwood has already written a book that is no one... Is it a one, book? Do we know that? Or it says text. I can't imagine she can spend a whole book. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've read... The, well, this piece that we're referring to is from the, the Guardian, Guardian right. but the story has been making the rounds and either it is a book or some of the other journalists writing about it are saying that it's a book. I don't know which one of those is accurate. I can't find in this piece where it says it's going to be a book. Uh, okay. I'm so guessing she's, a short story. I mean, cause she's writing three years something. on something. I, I don't, I just, that doesn't make any sense to me though. The whole thing doesn't make sense, to me, <laughs> but we can come to back to that. So she's writing something. <laughs> That she calls a message. Margaret Atwood talks about how books are really a message in a bottle. And so this something that she's writing won't be read by anyone who's alive right now. 
Unless, well, I mean, I guess you if know, you stick maybe. around, you just got born, you made it to 103, and you remember. Boy, that's yeah. an omnifocus task. You're going to be sitting there for a while. <laughs> no one listening to this show yeah, probably is, no is going to be around show. to find out what Margaret Atwood's okay. uh, story is about. But she suggests like that the readers of 2114 might need a paleoanthropologist to translate some of the story for them because language will have changed over the course of 100 years. And in her characteristic, super charming Margaret Atwood way, she loves this notion also because she says, quote, when you write any book, you do not know uh, who's going to read it and you don't know when they're going to read it. And also that with this setup, you don't have to be around for the part when it's a good review, when if it's a good review, the publisher takes credit for it. And if it's a bad review, it's all your fault. (laughs) Right. So why are we doing this? So now that that's the base, oh, wait, I forgot the other piece. So it's this artist came up with this idea, Katie Peterson, mm-hmm. when she was planting a forest of a thousand trees in some place just outside of Oslo. Okay. And the texts are going to be stored in a special room in, oh boy, Bjorvika. <laughs> it's got one of those O's with a strike through through it. Mm-hmm. I don't who knows how you say that. Um it's going to open in 2018, and the room is going to be made from the wood from these trees that this artist built. And the manuscripts to these texts that won't be read for 100 years are going to be stored there, but not available to read. What I don't get is what, what are we trying? Are we trying to say something here? I, I don't understand. I think it's art. It's just art. It's, okay. It's interesting. It's a, I think it's just an interesting this, art as thing. As Letterman would say, is this something or nothing? I feel like it's something in that it's cool. And Wait, it why would, is it okay? Why do you think it's cool? I don't. I honestly don't understand. I like this notion of you know preserving something that's been done uh, for the future, but also I like the twist. I just think it's a fun twist of you know we're not like it's not really becoming a Margaret Atwood publicity game or whoever the author is next year because we're not going to be able to read the thing. It's cool to see. I think it's cool to see writers you know create something for the sheer joy of creating it and put it away and participate in a project like this and let their art be separate from commerce for a little while. Cause I'm all for art and commerce, which is, you know, why I pay for books and work in an industry where books as art are business, but it's kind of, I just think it's cool. I uh, okay. Yeah, I'm just, uh, that's fine. You don't have Clearly, to you justify. Think it's, do you I don't think it's nothing. Are you on the letterman? This I, is nothing. Side? I don't know what it is. I can't quite figure out like, Okay, preservation, I think I understand the idea of preservation, but it's not like if a bunch of people read the book, we're going to wear out the story or something like that. It's not like a forest in that regard where it needs to be protected. Um, I I just don't get it. That doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's good. I just don't grok what is going going on with this. I'm interested in who else is going to sign on like this is the kind of project that just screams margaret atwood yes but i'm having a hard time coming up with other obvious selections for it well i think when we were talking before the show cory doctorow this sounds mm, like someone mm. who might do something like this Maybe george saunders yeah maybe maybe i don't know like it is hard. It is hard to say. I agree. Someone would do something like this. What if you just turn in blank paper? No one's going to be there to be accountable. To, I mean, I don't. Are they working it's the hard honor on system. it? Art on the honor system. Or will there be like some little librarian who like knows what's in there? Kind of like the person that keeps that's, the Coke trade secret together. Yeah, that's the thing I was wondering is who's going to ensure that this thing gets opened in 2114? Like, is there a an Illuminati line of succession? <laughs> right. Yeah, there's like a key. Right. That gets passed down from steward to steward. Or it's like the secret recipe to Bush's baked beans or something. Like one (laughs) guy knows it at a time. And then you have to kill the person who passes on the secret. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting insofar as we're talking about it. But um, but I'm having a hard time getting my my brain to make sense out of it spinning out all the possibilities if margaret atwood is the only like big known writer who signs on for this if everyone else is like you know say a small town newspaper columnist (laughs) on everyone (laughs) (laughs) like is it how 
important is it slash how interesting is it? And then how less interesting does it become if, or, or does it, I guess I'm just talking, you know, I'm talking out loud, which is how we talk. Right. I'm thinking through this out loud in a, is this interesting to me because it's Margaret Atwood and I would like to see other, you know, big writers who are into futury types of things take it on. Like, I, I have to confess, I would not be very interested in this if it were someone who was like, I found a hundred random people mm-hmm. to write stories and some of them might be decent, but, you know, most people aren't very good at writing fiction. So who knows, <laughs> but we're going to lock them away for a hundred years. And aren't you kind You're of, welcome. Aren't you kind of bummed that you don't get this whatever it is story to read? I'm kind of bummed about that myself. I mean, a little bit. I am a little bit bummed about that, but there's enough Margaret Atwood in the yeah. Like, there's true. It, it, they're really not the like we don't need more, more Margaret Atwood because I will take all the Margaret Atwood that right. you can give me. But I just read her new short story collection, Stone Mattress, and in the front of it, when it has you know in the front of the book oh, when it has yeah. the other works by, it takes two and a half pages for them to list all of the books that she has published. You know who I want to participate in this? Maybe for seven or eight novels, Joyce Carol Oates. Mm. Just lock away like her next six or six. She's got plenty. She does. She'll probably still be writing in a hundred years. She'll still have <laughs> a book. A book a year will come out in a hundred years. You know, you know who should really do it? Dan Brown. There, hey, that's and not then, fair. We, no, 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 no. They could. No, it would be great because then if he writes a story now, a hundred years from now, someone reading it will be able to be like, oh, yeah, that thing actually did happen. Or it turned out that there really was uh, a mystery about these things. <laughs> All of the conspiracy theory things yes. from Dan Brown just get sealed away and someone has to check them, fact check them in a hundred years. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe you might have something there. Um, anyway, I, 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 you know what? Luckily, we won't be around. And so, where are we ending this? You are confounded by the I future am. library, and I'm interested, but possibly only because of Margaret Atwood. Right. Like I like the idea of it, but I don't like the thing that it actually exists. It's kind of like one of those things you think of, like late at night in college and during a bull session like yeah wouldn't it be cool if <laughs> yeah we got all these people to write these stories and then no one got to see them for a hundred years <laughs> and like yeah whoa <laughs> this is great because i know exactly what your face yeah, looks like yeah right that's right and he's like <laughs> from that level i'm like yeah i guess as a thought experiment it's sort of weird but it's an actual practical thing so this yeah, library is just going to have to maintain this like, room for a hundred years. Like, where's that money? Co- I, I don't get it. The whole yeah, thing. There's so many weird pieces. The handicap on the likelihood that this thing will actually will be maintained for 100 one years. In, and then one in 20. Opened in 2014. I'll give you good odds on that. All right. Um, <laughs> let's do some, let's do stats. Yeah. Um, Methodology. Place where I'm a little more comfortable than um, magical time travel manuscripts. Um <laughs> Younger Americans in public libraries. So the Pew Internet people, people the people mm-hmm. of Pew Research, who do a lot of interesting studies, and who cite them from time to time. Good methodo- methodologically sound oh, studies. on firm ground. They didn't build yes. their house on, a, on the sandy land here at all. Um, so here's, they did a study about library habits of Americans. And the summary of findings, and we'll dive into a little bit here, is that younger Americans, those ages 16 to 29, um, you know, fascinates research and organizations because of their advanced technology stuff, right? And also because it's easy to lump them all together and call them millennials and write think pieces about Well, it. there's that too. Um, so they did a study about how younger Americans use public libraries. Um, so here we go. Let's see. Well, you, what, what's the big stat here? Let's, let's lead with okay. the... Okay, well, lead I with mean, the, the, let's not the big headline the is the kids are all right. Right, good. That millennials, people in this group of, you know, readers aged 16 to 29 or young Americans aged 16 to 29 are more likely than Americans in all of the age groups above them to have read a book in the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. And sure, some of that may be that many of them are in school. And certainly the, they break this group into, they break the millennials into three uh, subgroups comprised of high schoolers who are 16 and 17, college aged people who are 18 to 24. And then the they just call it like the third generation set there who's 25 to 29. And the high school and college aged people are more likely than the 25 to 29 year olds to have read a book. And so they think some of that, you know, has to do with that those people are in school and you have to read things for 
school. Um, but their you know media use is high. Millennials are just as likely as older adults to have used a library in the past 12 months and more likely to have used a library website. And they also acknowledge that some of the good information they might need or accurate information that they need is not available on websites hmm. and that they need to read books to do research. There's yeah. good stuff here. I mean, it's not, um, especially the older group in this study, they break it down ages mm -hmm. 25 to 29, say they're more similar to members of older age groups than their younger counterparts because they're not in school. They're not in college right. being assigned. You know, a lot of people in college get assigned to read a book. Um, they are less likely than college age adults who have read a book in the past year, but are more likely to keep up with the news. In mm -hmm. addition, a large proportion, 42% are parents, a group with particularly high rates of library usage. Yeah. Um, additionally, library users in this group are less likely than younger patrons to say their library use has decreased, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and they are much more likely than those younger patrons to say that the various library services provided to them are very important to them and their family. Yeah, about four in ten younger Americans reported reading a book in any format on a daily basis, mm -hmm. uh, which is a rate similar to older adults. And overall, 88% of Americans under the age of 30 read a book in the past year, which makes them more likely to do so than older adults. They also have a higher um, technology adoption rate with 98% of those under 30 using the internet mm -hmm. and 90% of the internet users saying that they use social networking and then that over three quarters of the younger Americans have a smartphone. Many have tablets, 24% have an e-reader. Hmm. Interesting stuff. And I know you've said it's 38% have a tablet and 24% have an e-reader and you've observed that in your classrooms yes. that the, it's all about the tablets. Tablets. Yeah. Yeah. Tablets for sure. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's not like there's a great, like, upswelling of library usages, but it's not falling off a cliff is what's, I guess, the, the big yeah. story. It's, the and, kids are all right. The kids aren't, like, right. taking the up the library flag and wrapping themselves in it. They're, and, they're using it like most people have. In right, and separate from the library story is the popular and easy, I would call it lazy headline. It's like the kids with their technology and they poke at their smartphones and they don't read anything. <laughs> right. They don't read anymore. And so the world is doomed. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't look that way. These young Americans who look, I'm 31. And so I am not far out of this age group um, are reading books. They are using technology. They're using technology to read books and their use of technology doesn't seem to be inhibiting their ability or their desire to read or their understanding of the information that they're getting. There seems to be from older, from the demographic that writes cranky New York Times editorials, there seems mm -hmm. to be a lot of concern that like having Google somehow means that you trust everything that Google turns up for you um, and can't identify good information or bad information. But it looks like at least some of the pieces in the study point to um, kids and the people, young adults in the millennial group, recognizing that, you know, information that they get on the internet is not always great. Yeah. I thought this was interesting as well. Despite their higher rates of library usage overall, younger Americans continue to be less likely than older adults to say that if their local library closed, it would have a major impact on them. Hmm. I'm guessing that they are feel comfortable enough with technology that they could feel like they could maybe piece something together to replace yeah. it. That it wouldn't be just, you know, that there's kind of a internet safety net under mm -hmm. there to, 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 to um, cushion that blow. Um, that's not to say that they don't they wouldn't. They don't say. They do say it would have an impact on them, just not to the degree that the older Americans say mm -hmm. they would be freaked out if their library went away. All right. Well, I feel like it's time for a sponsor. Is it time for a sponsor? I don't know. Yeah, Where it's time we? for a sponsor. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, our sponsor this week is Destined for Dune by Carrie Corp and Lori Langdon. Uh, it's the second book in a young adult series, a young adult fast action romance Dune series, and that's Dune, D-O-O-N, which I think is a doff of the hat to Brigadoon, not, mm. not Dune, D-U-N-E, deserts and giant worms. monsters right. worms right i always want to confuse dune with tremor <laughs> <laughs> i can understand why <laughs> 
at any rate, Destin the Dune, Carrie Corp and Lori Langdon, it's the sequel to Dune. Um, if they say fans of Outlander that are looking for a new read will enjoy this because it's set in Scotland. Um, it is young adult, so it is cleaner uh, than the Outlander series mm-hmm. is. Um, think of Narnia meets Outlander in a magical land. Oh, that's um, a also, good pitch. I like that. Yeah, I wish that I could take credit for oh, that. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> uh, the, if you're into Broadway and you're an, also an avid reader, this it is a Brigadoon-inspired series, um, and it's, uh, you know, Brigadoon is a Broadway show about a magical land that, like, only shows up once every hundred years or something, and you cross a bridge and you find yourself in it, and then you fall in love with a man in a plaid shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So in this follow-up, McKenna Reed, who's the main character, realizes that she's made a horrible mistake. Um, She chose to follow her dreams of Broadway instead of staying in the enchanted land of Dune, and to make everything worse, she has received her calling, um, capital C calling here in the copy, proof that she and a boy named Duncan are each other's one true love um and it's torment for her because she has visions of the very alluring scottish prince appear right before she goes on stage oh no Um, oh no I know. Yeah, that's right. He tells her uh, there's an ancient curse threatening to overtake Dune and that the new queen needs her to return, but she, and so she doesn't have to think twice. There's darkness closing in on all sides, and she has to battle a world of nightmares in order to protect the kingdom. So it's loosely based on the Broadway musical Brigadoon. Um, kind of a, just a fun fact is that the two authors, Carrie Corp and Laurie Langdon, are best friends. And so, you know, a book for young adults written by two people who you know like and enjoy and care for each other is just i think a fun idea um if i could write fiction i would want to write it with my best friends <laughs> uh and while it's written for teens and fits the teen genre um, and format perfectly you know they at the publisher i think that adults will enjoy uh, the fast-paced romance as well um, I would like someone to make me a Scottish playlist to listen to. <laughs> to go. I remember with this. when Dune, the first book was called Dune, right? Yes. And it came out last year. Last and, year. And they mm-hmm. did some advertising on the site. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people commented about it. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, very it well. seems to be well received and pretty popular. And I mean, I, I appreciate a Broadway callback. I like that as well. Um, let's see. Uh, so that do, is our sponsor. Let's do it. Yes. Thank you so much for Destin for doing for sponsoring the show. Let's talk about authors who make a rain. <sighs> um, so Forbes annual list of the top earning authors came out this week. And it is 34 slides to click yeah. through. <laughs> <laughs> so let us break it. Down let us break you. it down. Um, I was going to, this would be a great guessing game, but we both know the list. So we need to imagine a third party. I almost told you not to look at it. I did. I looked at it today for critical linking. Um, Let's see. What what do you think people would be most, I mean, the number one, which if you followed the show, you probably know already is J-Pat, James Patterson, ringing in with a robust $90 million. In 2014 so far. Was that what it was? I didn't even see that part. Okay. I think I thought it's t- Forbes top running authors of 2014. Wow, um, I might have read that wrong. At any 90 rate, 90 million is a lot. So if that's not the absolute number, the relative number I think is actually even more interesting. Yeah, because D. Brizzle, our boy. our boy, is number two with 28 million dollars, which means that Patterson has tripled the Everybody number two else. person. And E. L. James is in 15th position here right um at 10 million so i was a little surprised that she wasn't higher up on the list but of course it's 2014 and if we were doing this show in 2012 she'd be yeah higher because of the 50 shades moment um i guess i was a little surprised but just because i don't think about these writers as much that nora roberts is number mm-hmm. three with 23 million and danielle Steele at 20 uh, 2 million and then janet ivanovich at 20 million. I mean, um, so, a, a good way to check is to go to your drugstore and right. see what books they have by the magazines. Right. And you're going to get a bunch of these titles on And there. Nora Roberts and Daniel Steele and Janet Ivanovich have all been writing for decades yeah. and are very prolific um, and have dedicated now generations of dedicated readers. Yes. Um, like the women my age stole their mom's Danielle Steele books. <laughs> It's like, these are people who are brands as much as they are. I mean, 
Well, and that's an interesting point about the brand because James Patterson, you know, you and I were speculating on Twitter, like one of the ways that James Patterson has ended up making three times as much money as the next uh, most successful author is it's not just James Patterson doing the writing anymore. He has that like factory farm of co-writers where he comes right. up with, Someone writes a James Patterson novel. Yeah, he comes up with like the general concept and the storyline, but someone else writes the mm-hmm. thing. And so if if your job is to be a story idea generator rather than write the writer of a 300-page novel, yeah. you, can, you can put your name on a lot more books in a year. Um, Dan Brown, I guess this must be on the strength of Inferno, mostly, um, 28 million. And he has a, he has a good backlist too, but oh, the yeah. thing about Roberts and Patterson, Steele, Ivanovich, especially is they've got a huge backlists. Yeah. So got and Dan Brown has five what, books, maybe five or six. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting that he's so high up there with just a handful of books. And then James Patterson has dozens and yeah. dozens. Um, that's kind of an interesting way of looking at the list, the, the sort of title to income ratio. Mm-hmm. So probably, I guess I'm looking at Veronica Roth probably has the best title to income ratio. She's what? like It's not three. numbered here. Uh, she has three titles and she's 17 million. So she's tied right. for sixth place, it looks like on the yeah. list. Well, and then there's Suzanne Collins has oh. the three Hunger Games books. Right. that were. She has other books, but the three Hunger right. Games ones were the big titles at six, 16 million. Mm, I guess E.L. James, she's number 10. Right. Or I'm sorry, 10, Bal- million, do- 10 yeah. million dollars. David Baldacci is at 11 million, and he's very prolific. Yep. He writes a book a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's doing lower sales per title than a Janet Ivanovich. Grisham and King, $17 million uh, mm-hmm. last year, and they both have huge backlists. Gillian Flynn, I guess. Oh, yeah, she's at $9 million in the... That's got to be so top-heavy on Gone Girl that the other titles she has are barely blips, I guess. Yeah, and she had a big sort of backlist bump, though, when Gone Girl came out. Oh, sure. People, but yeah, do you think that's even 8% of this number, her backlist? I don't I'd know. be really interested. I would like to know that as well. John Green. Um, $9 million. Rounding out the top... What is this? How many is this? 20? 17. 17. Rounding out the top 17. Um, that's an easy number. $9 million. <laughs> um, Rick Reardon, $10 million. Fun. Let's see. George R. Martin, $12 million. JK. Everybody on this list has had movies or television shows or both inspired by their work. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. Sure, sure. Jeff Kinney is an interesting one. He's at number six, and he's the creator of the diary of a wimpy kid books which are mm-hmm. hugely popular 17 million that that's he's the one on, i know he's popular but until i see a list like this do i just sort of remember right. how huge those books are anything else when, interesting about the list i mean i guess i'm not that surprised by it or were mostly, you surprised by anything here not really yeah. you know it's mostly adult Authors, you know, Jeff Kinney yeah. writes for kids, well, Rick Collins, Reardon, Roth and John and YA. Green write YA, and Veronica Roth writes mm-hmm. YA, and Susan Collins, J.K. Rowling. So they're all white. Yeah. Like, t- let's let's pretend yeah. publishing doesn't have a diversity right. no problem now. The liter- top 17. <laughs> Only Gillian Flynn would you call literary fiction even, and it's even kind of a mystery thriller yeah, almost. Yeah, that's a... It's a genre. Yeah, it's like in literary fiction clothing. I'm not sure if it's clothing. a lit fic genre or genre lit fic. I mean, who cares? I guess, but it's a mashup. Yeah, but everyone else is pretty mm-hmm. much genre and commercial, YA, commercial yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, all, all white folks. Um, I guess American heavy. We didn't mm-hmm. say that. Uh, rolling. Rowling? I don't even know what's right anymore. It's Rowling, Rowling. J.K. Rowling, gonna, Rainbow Rowl. Rowl, okay. And um, I remember that because Rainbow always says her last name rhymes with towel. Towel, okay. So oh, I, I can remember picture, that. Yeah, A Rainbow, Rainbow Towel. towel. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Rainbow Rowl. That was so easy. So Rowling and Martin, oh, excuse me, Rowling and uh, just spaced. Well, maybe there's not another British person. I thought there was another British person. Nope. I guess I don't. Do I know that Rick Reardon is American? I guess I, I'm not I sure do. about that. You do. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, that's interesting. The, there's not some Chinese author that makes a $8 well, million the, dollars a year. It's the Forbes list. So this might be based on just us book sales. Okay. Yeah. They didn't actually say like, that. I don't think. Yeah. If it were global, you would like Murakami would have to be on a global list. I would for think how many so. books he sells. 
Yeah, I would, I would think so. I wonder if you doubled the size of this list. You know, you went down to people that made $5 million a year. Because mm. you'd, you'd pick up people like Harper Lee, I think, right? We talked about that. You yeah. know, that just sell a billion. Right, you'd start getting into popular backlist and mm-hmm. classics probably. Because I know... Someone on Twitter was who was looking at their who has a BookScan account, which you and I are forever envious of. Um, BookScan, <laughs> but is, not yet willing to pony up. Yeah, for. was it four grand a year or something it's a like lot. that? It's basically we have access to book sales, um, the raw data, and they're not perfect, but it is what it is. And they were saying that last year the Goldfinch sold six hundred thousand copies. Mm. Um, so if you do the math, six hundred thousand at about what the retail price was thirty bucks. So even if you do that, it's still you know, you're getting fifteen million dollars in raw and gross. Yeah. Um, so Tart at a fifteen to twenty percent royalty, you know, they're looking at three, four million dollars somewhere in that um neighborhood. Um anything else on this? No, I think it's just interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. A pretty decent male female split. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, top two are dudes, but then you have a run of three women, dude, lady, dude, dude, lady, lady, dude. Dude, this dude, lady, <laughs> lady, duck, dude. Duck goose. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I didn't add up the numbers on a gender split, but in terms of just representation, Patterson mm-hmm. kind of skews it because he's so yeah. far ahead. He makes as much as the next four people combined uh, on the list. That's insane. It is. It's just insane. You know, it's interesting that Nicholas Sparks is not oh, on this list. I was going to ask you, uh, people you're surprised aren't on the Nicholas Sparks. That's an excellent, excellent observation. And. Who else? That we just see everywhere. Who wrote, um, what is her name? The woman who wrote the Sookie Stackhouse novels. Oh, that The True yeah. Blood series Charlene is Charlene Harris? On. Is yeah. that her name? I guess a couple years ago when the series was new, she probably would have been right. on here. Um, I, re- I worked for Barnes & Noble the year that True Blood came out, and we could not keep those on oh, the shelves. Oh, is that right? And there are a lot of them. Hmm. You know, Stephanie Meyer's not on here. Right, not anymore. Not the Twilight folks. Um, so that doesn't seem to have aged very well. Yeah. Because that's, that's the other thing about... Well, I guess I guess Rowling has those... Um, uh, the, the casual vacancy and the adult titles, the Robert mm-hmm. Galbraith books, whereas Meyer hasn't had anything. No. I'd be interested the, in of the 14 million for J.K. Rowling. How much though, is HP? What the, yeah, how much is Harry it's Potter? It's got to be a lot. I it would think it's a lot. a lot. There's like a generation of readers that grew up on the Harry Potter books. Yeah. You know, like you, like you and I love the Harry Potter books, and a lot of the Book Riot contributors love the Harry Potter books, but we're in our 30s, and readers who are in that 18 to 24 group right now, like that was the defining reading experience mm-hmm. of a lot of their childhoods. And I think that's, we're going to see that for a long time where like twilight was a huge phenomenon, but it wasn't for most, it wasn't a life defining, you know, right. reading life defining experience for a lot of readers. It was a jump start to a lot of teenagers reading lives in a like, Oh, I can read a big book and get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I was a bookseller, I had lots of parents tell me like, you know, these are, these are 400 page books and my daughter plows through them and I haven't seen her finish a book like that in a long time. So there was undeniable stuff happening yeah. around the twilight books, but I'm not surprised that it hasn't lasted. No, I'm not either. It just, it's just not there. Um, yeah. I guess Tolkien isn't on here, hmm. which, um, is interesting. I feel like the movies still drive a lot of book sales. I don't know if yeah. that's maybe some weirdness of the accounting or nationality or something. I mm-hmm. I would have thought that that would be on par with Gillian, Gillian Flynn's numbers in a year for the number of Hobbit and related books that got sold. But huh. who knows? Um, maybe like I like yeah like like how many books does like A. A. Milne sell in a year? Like oh, you know like know. for Winnie right. the Pooh and stuff like there's got to be a bunch. But clearly, think. it doesn't make the top um, the top list here. Ninety million. I just can't even. Yeah, get my I head wonder around. how that compares to like, like what is um, Beyonce making a year? Just in comparing it to other entertainers. Oh, hmm. Because that seems ninety million seems like a good number. I don't care what kind of entertainer you are. Yeah. Like, does LeBron across like his endorsement deals and his salary make ninety million dollars a year? Maybe. I would. Th- I think. Tiger Woods at his biggest, I think, made more yeah, than that. I, I, maybe it's, if if it's, but it's not a it's not a difference of uh, kind. 
or degree. I mean, it's just yeah. sort of, it's probably pretty close. It's interesting looking at this list, thinking about who's the Beyonce of the book world. Like, <laughs> like there's Beyonce as the Beyonce of music. Well, I don't even know, like, is she the highest grossing musical artist? Because that might even be, if I could be just oh, misrepresenting that, because that's different, right? Well, she's certainly having a moment, but I think like long term, it's probably somebody like you too. Right. Yeah. Who sold the most records? So it's probably the Beatles. Those dudes yeah. just sell jillions of records every year. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's an interesting list. Someday we're going to spring for that book scan thing. Someday. And we're going to do like a six-part podcast just diving into it. <laughs> There's going to be a spin-off podcast. Yes. It's, just like the st- it's like what they do on um, the Dan Patrick sports podcast mm. stat of the day stat of the day and then they break out right yeah we'll nerdy. have to we'll have to like partial it uh, partial it out in like little nuggets over time like here's a thing we thought was interesting in book scan this week <laughs> you know what that podcast is never getting made because if you and i fall into book scan we're never coming out of no it. it's true it's i'm gonna have like, like a, one of those huge like rip van winkle beards and just like <laughs> right. looking on my phone we're gonna have a 700 page long google doc <laughs> of notes to each <laughs> yeah, other right. and it's just gonna be like we could publish our IM stream. Yeah, it's like, look from... how much money Jonathan Saffron Foer made in 2009. <laughs> that's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. We, I, that's a, that's a thing we would never recover. Yeah. From. We don't, we, we probably shouldn't get that actually. <laughs> it's the labyrinth. There's like David Bowie in tie dye purple <laughs> pants is standing in the middle, but we're never getting, never there getting because out. We're looking at John, Jonathan Saffron for just 2009 need to earnings. know how much Morrison makes in ebook sales. Um, <laughs> speaking of labyrinths, we're never going to get out of Facebook. <laughs> Turn our attention to Facebook. Uh, if you have a Facebook account, no doubt you have seen over the last week or so um, the meme going around of tagging people for the list 10 books that have stayed with you in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- really wish that someone had rebranded this as like the Ice Book It Challenge <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Not bad. I like that. Been thinking about that. Um, don't take more than a few minutes and don't think too hard. They do not have to be the right books or great works of literature, just that ones that affected you in some way. Uh, so I saw quite a few people, civilians as I call them, mm-hmm. in my fo- Facebook um, feed doing this. Um, and apparently there were 130,000 status updates. Oh, so a, a journalist yes. asked Facebook, did you do any data on this? And usually I guess Facebook is not forthcoming, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the Facebook data science team said, hey, yeah, we'll look at this. Yeah, and they picked 130,000. Oh, right. It's a, it's a de-identified sample. sample. They, did they say how many people did it? They have not said. I, I mean, you know, that number's changing like every mm-hmm. second. Right. But they my took guess, a sample. My guess, it must be in the millions. From what, yeah. Just from what I've... If my feed is any representative... Uh, right, but... Uh, in this sample, 63% were from the U.S., 9.3% were from India, and 6.3% were from the U.K., and women outnumbered men 3 to 1. Um, 3.1 to 1, excuse me? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. No, I, <laughs> I, just, I thought that was weird. That the they average made that age was 37. Oh, okay. Of, in this sample, which is, that's interesting. Ah, that is interesting. I wonder why that is. Anyway, so this is the top 20 books mentioned, um, along with the percentage of all lists Mm-hmm. That included them. Also not a surprising list. Well, I guess this is kind of the same game we just played, right? Which is, uh-huh. it's not surprising, but interesting, I guess. <laughs> That's like the theme of this show. Yeah, right. So Harry Potter was number one, the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, 21% of the list had the Harry Potter series. Okay. Uh, two, To Kill a Mockingbird, about 14.5%. Which is the To Kill a Mockingbird is the far and away winner anytime we do a poll about favorite yeah, books. Yeah, we have to come up with polls to tr- see if we can get To Kill a Mockingbird not to be like, the I number one. I live for this yeah. to come up with an answer. Maybe we have to that- do your favorite book that does not have a bird in the title. That's how we'll do <laughs> Favorite book that is not To Kill a Mockingbird. All <laughs> right. Um, three, oh, there's Tolkien right there. Number three, mm-hmm. 13.8%. And okay. then there's a pretty sharp drop off. Um, well, four is The Hobbit. Oh, yeah. And then there's Pride and Prejudice at five. Yeah, which is 7%. So now we're, we're now at half the percentage of the top, you know, yeah. to get in the top three. Hitchhiker's Guide, 6%. Okay, Catcher in the Rye, right. Chronicles of Narnia. Gatsby, Orwell. Oh, excuse me, Little Women, that's not surprising. Jane Eyre, The Stand by Stephen King, now we're down to 5%. Mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind, Wrinkle in Time, Handmaid's Tale, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, and The Alchemist at number 20. Surprises? 
thoughts, feelings, concerns? Uh, you know, not really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, happy that Proust is not actually on here. Um, I think it was somebody at the Huffington Post wrote a piece earlier this week that was like, stop lying about your favorite <laughs> books. <laughs> And it was like, everyone knows that you didn't really love In Search of Lost Time. Right. Um, so and not surprisingly, these are all major books in the culture. Um, a lot of them are books that we're assigned to read in school in the U.S. And Austin, this is a Yeah, this is a U.S. heavy Salinger, list. Fitzgerald, so, Orwell. Yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide, I'm happy to see there. Yay. That's a, yeah, that's a fun... Sci-fi comedy? Whim, yeah, whimsical read. It's not a Smart. thing people read in school. You know, so that's a... I think it's nice to see books appear on this list that you just know people were reading for pleasure mm -hmm. and that that pleasure reading impacted them. Handmaid's uh, Tale or, or Lady Atwood, number yeah. 18, 4%. Um, the Stand, Stephen King, that's one I'm surprised mm -hmm. by just because there's so much backlist, kind of like Atwood. There's so many to you know, choose from that that one is the one that rose to the top I right. find interesting. I'm confused about why The Lion, the Witch, and The Wardrobe is broken out from yeah. The Chronicles of Narnia. Well, because um, Lord of the Rings, they have put together in one book, but really that's three books. Right. Like, if you're going to condense stuff or, like, condense the Harry Potter series. Like, the Hunger Games trilogy. Right. Then be consistent. So I'm curious about why The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe got treated differently. Um, the Alchemist, I guess. I, that's a little surprising yeah. to me that it's in the top twenty. Top like, twenty, yeah. It's okay. Sure, well, that's a like lot a of big people like that book. Oprah, for whatever hit. I think about it, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like they haven't heard me. Yeah, I. I guess I wish that something else were in that <laughs> spot. Um, a Wrinkle in Time. I forget. I mean, I sometimes forget about that series, even though I loved it as a yeah. kid. Yeah, I think that's maybe, I mean, not the size of the Harry Potter right. impact, but a similar generation-defining read. Yeah. I um, wonder if over time of Harry Potter, how much it'll come back to the field. Like uh, in 20 years, will it come back to be uh, up there with To Kill a Mockingbird, or will To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. one day overtake it? Ooh. or? Well, To Kill a Mockingbird's had staying power for many decades yeah. now. It also gets assigned in school, which is one reason people right. read it. Is Harry Potter getting, I mean, some of it, like you said, you get propped up by getting assigned it. Right. Um, so some of these things, like, I think that's one that I find interesting is books that have been out for decades that don't mm -hmm. get assigned in school. Those ones that make the list, I think, is actually maybe right. more like, interesting. So maybe... Hitchhiker. Yeah, Hitchhiker, The Stand. I think you were yes. saying The Stand surprises you, but a lot of people love The Stand. Yeah, they do. Gone Clearly, with the Wind. They're Gone with the it. Wind at 16. Oh. That's one that always pops up that always yeah, surprises me how many people that. That one surprises book. me too. But I guess at this point I should stop being surprised. Right. My perpetually idiotic surprise. <laughs> um, the rest, though, pretty... Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. I'll be you White know, another, people again. Yeah. Exclusively, right? Well, and that's also a reflection of what gets taught. Yeah. Um, it'll Women be interesting to see, if, see lady, lady, if Harry Potter lady, regresses to the lady. mean, I would bet hard dollars that in 20 years, the Hunger Games is not on this list. Oh, not even to, do you think it'll fall below Wrinkle in Time? Yeah. Oh, bold claim. You know, we should build a library of our predictions that we won't open for a hundred years. <laughs> We can, line okay. it, we can line it with the souls of our enemies. We won't be around to know how wrong we That's are. That's right. That's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, let's see. It's anything else interesting in this report? There's a bunch of graphs I don't understand. Yeah. Oh, they did the top remaining 100 books. Oh, right. boy. This so, really gets down to... Anne of Green Gables, The Giver. We've got some Robert Jordan. Number 100 was only, li was only listed on 1.45%. Yeah. So that's where the wild things are. Vonnegut. Very long tail here. You know, this in this big list of 100, now that I'm scrolling through it, there are a lot of genre titles. There's a lot of sci-fi and fantasy stuff and some mysteries and thrillers and the Anne Rice interview with the vampire. Watchmen is at number 87. And this is a... It's an interesting, like, P 
people talk about wanting to be able to say that they've read like the, mm. you know, the books that make them look smart or like that uh, imaginary dinner party that you're always right. talking about that um, you're going to need to be able to dust off your literary bona fides <laughs> right. and, and prove that you've read all the right books. But it like it looks like when we're talking to our friends on Facebook and just reflecting on stuff that stayed with us. And I think the wording of this survey is interesting. Like the meme is about the books that have stayed with you or made a lasting impression. It's not your favorite. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to be like, oh, well, I loved Proust. Um, This is about like what stuck with you. What are you still thinking about? Um, Dune is on the list. And so, you know, lots of readers love genre. And we know this from sales. Right. Uh, but the literary, like, you know, white, the ivory tower literary establishments want to not talk about genre still um, when it looks like, you know, boots on the ground readers are saying that some of the top 100 books that have stuck with them for a while fall in there. Whether you're talking about the Kurt Vonnegut type of, you know, funky genre, Terry Pratchett. The help is still Neil hanging Gaiman. around at number forty-eight. That's, oh, a, that's a bit of a surprise still. I thought Ten years from now, that thing is yeah. off the, the Da Vinci list. Code. 57. Let's see what else is interesting here. I'm thinking about getting a D-Brizzle license plate. Uh, you know, Memoirs of a Geisha by Arthur Golden. Remember how big that book was? Yeah. And that still has a, a long life, number 72. And that was a huge book club book. Oh, and the huge. average age of the sample, remember, here is 37. 37. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, you can, you can the see shack. the... You can see the carcasses, you know, of um, book club books from like five years ago. Oh, where the wild things are is number 100. I'm surprised the lovely bones isn't on here. Speaking of carcasses of book club books. Yeah. Hmm. The Hmm. art of war. That's a book that I think people say that they've read that they haven't actually read. I'm surprised actually that a song of ice and fire is only number 79 right now with 1.65%. Did game of thrones get listed separately? Perhaps, but isn't that the whole tr- it, isn't that the whole cycle? It is, but it may, anyway, but they maybe. broke out. Yeah, they broke out Narnia and Lion the Witch in the oh, Wardrobe. Yeah, I'm I just wondering. Understand. That's odd. All right, we, again, we're, Web, we're, anyway. we're we're looking at the mirror here. We got to get out of that. Yeah, if you care to see what people are talking about on Facebook and to put your own long lasting impactful impactful is not a word, and I'm really sorry <laughs> that I just said it. Um, you're books that have less left lasting impressions on you and compare them to the massive horde of people who use Facebook. Yeah, we'll <laughs> then, do a link in the show notes if you want to see. Then you can do that. Man, I, don't I got lost in that list. I want to give a quick shout out, just unrelated, to um, Kyle Zimmer, who's the co-founder of First Book. She's going to be receiving the National Book Foundation's Literarian Award for Outstanding Service mm. um, this year. And we love first book at book riot they do great work and they're taking on a special project that we talked about back in the spring um to help bring more um, children's books by and about people of color to the market um, to demonstrate that there is demand for those books and so for that work and for all of the great work that first book does in the literary community she's going to be recognized so hero of the week thank you for your good work kyle zimmer yay um should we do new books yeah. Oh, I totally forgot we were. We got, do we new, got books. new books. I got like so far down yeah. into that Facebook. You've list. got you've got a bunch here. Do you want to pare them down, or you want to try to roll through all? This? Uh, I'm gonna roll through them. Okay, go. I can, go, I'm gonna go, do it. Speed go, round. You can so, do it. speaking of data, there's Dataclism by Christian Rudder is out this week. He is one of the co-founders of OKCupid, and OKCupid, you will not be shocked to find out, keeps a lot of data mm. about its users and about their behavior. And the big questions that Rudder seeks to answer in the book are about the gaps between between the beliefs and ideas we express publicly and what we do privately when we're clicking ratings on profiles where no one else is going to see our ratings. So he looks at um, like the ways that white men talk about women of color publicly and how attractive they are against the attractiveness ratings that occur when white men view pictures of women of color in OkCupid. Um, He looks at like the average age of attractiveness. Like this is an interesting from, I guess, an evolutionary and cultural standpoint stat that um, men 
on OkCupid, regardless of their age, consistently rate women who are 20 years old as the most attractive. Like whether you're a 20 year old male OkCupid user or a 50 year old male OkCupid user, but that um, the ages of the men that women rate as most attractive increase. He calls it, you know, age appropriately as women's ages increase. Mm. So you can look at gender differences and race group differences. And he puts the behaviors that he sees on OkCupid alongside data from Facebook and Twitter and other major social networks that collect a lot of data and Match.com to look at social movements and what we can tell from people's private behavior about where the culture is going. I thought it was totally fascinating. Um very interesting. And there's much to nerd out on. One of my very favorite books of the year um, is also out this week, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. It's about what happens after a flu, like a really bad super flu sweeps across the country, across the world, um, and only like 2% of the population is left. And uh, the story moves from a bunch of characters, but the main character is, the me- is a member of the Traveling Symphony, which is a group of performers that are going around um, sort of the part of the country where Michigan is currently located and they perform Shakespeare and um, they go from like one little settlement to another little settlement and she looks at what the world would be like 20 years after a giant epidemic. Um, It is fascinating and so scary and she thinks about all of the little tiny details of daily life that would change or that would go away. I just really really loved it. Um, I've enjoyed her previous novels but this is a breakout in a big way. That has run through the book writing core like a virus that book. People are loving it and passing it on. I thought it was really great. If you're looking for something to um, fill the hole that is left in you after the conclusion of Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, that's a really good place to go. Uh, If you're into politics or maybe you have finally finished reading Hillary Clinton's latest book, Wendy Davis's memoir, Forgetting to be Afraid, came out this week as well. Good uh, reviews on that so far, but I have not read it yet. And Maureen Corrigan, who is a um, book reviewer for NPR, is uh, out with So We Read On, which is a book all about The Great Gatsby, how it came to be, how it almost didn't come to be, and why it endures. Uh, So if you want to do a book about books... You've got So We Read On, and in paperback this week is Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon, which is about parenting in a big, yes. heavy way. I have not read this, but I think uh, you have read parts of it. I read it. I read the first sample. I downloaded the sample, and I desperately, desperately is strong. That's too strong. I definitely <laughs> want to read that. But again, like I do nonfiction on audio, and I think this is even longer than Hard Choices. Uh, it is um, 58,000 hours <sighs> long. I'm looking at Audible right now. Yeah. Um, so those sound great. Good. And good. those are the books. This those are week. the books. Those and are the that's books. our show. That's our show. As always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Reading Ape. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. If you'd like to drop us an email, you can do so at podcast at bookriot.com. The show notes for this and all of our previous shows are available at bookriot.com slash podcast. If you'd like to read us a review on iTunes or a rating, that would be super great and super helpful. It uh, helps people people find out about the show. And until next week, you're going on vacation. I'm going to be out the next two weeks. Next two weeks. What am I going to do? Well, oh, I know what you, I'm going to do. I'm going to You're going to have good guests. Excellent guests. <laughs> and I'm going to look forward to listening. Um, one of those guests will be Preeti Cheever, who is the co-host of the O Comics podcast for our new site panels. That's right. Which will be launching October 1st. So October can, 1st is official. It's official. We're 10 2014 Yeah. So you can visit panels.net to sign up to be notified when it launches and search for O Comics in the iTunes store if you want to subscribe to that show. It's mm-hmm. going to be great. Preeti and Paul are so much funnier than we are. <laughs> Uh, thank you to Squarespace and to Destin for Dune for sponsoring this week. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have an excellent vacation, Rebecca. And thank for the you. rest of you listeners, I'll talk to you next week. 